Hi all, and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Today we're talking about penthouse fusion. So there was one fascinating little anecdote that showed up in my fusion research of this era in the US in the 1970s that I really wanted to talk about. Um, it arose with the new wave of tokamaks that was motivated after the initial frenzy over their potential usefulness. Now it didn't quite fit into the show, but it was too delightful to pass up telling you about. So here for your delectation is a little bonus mini episode to tell the story. So we're talking today about a machine called the Rigatron. It starts with fusion researcher Robert Boussard, who had previously worked on such science fiction-esque projects as the Boussard Ramjet for nuclear-powered spaceflight. In 1960, Boussard first came up with this Ramjet, an interstellar space drive powered by hydrogen fusion, which would use hydrogen collected with a magnetic field from the interstellar gas, the interstellar medium that exists between the stars. Due to the presence of high-energy particles throughout space, much of the interstellar hydrogen exists in an ionised state, the so-called H2 regions which show up so beautifully in our telescopes and through false-colour images, as the ionised gas recombines with electrons in the plasma, releasing photons of light towards the Earth. But because the hydrogen gas is ionised, it has a charge, and therefore you can actually manipulate it through magnetic or electric fields. Now, the gas is far too sparse to ever dream of collecting physically in a sort of net, even at its most dense, there's only a few million atoms of hydrogen in a cubic centimetre, which is trillions of times less dense than the air that surrounds us. You'd need an extremely large physical collector to get anything like enough of these hydrogen ions to power sustained spaceflight. But once the particles are charged, you can attract them from a far greater collecting radius. Boussard proposed to scoop up ionised hydrogen and funnel it into a fusion reactor, using the exhaust from that reactor as a rocket engine, so the particles, the neutrons that would fly out, would push his spacecraft along. It appears that the energy gain in the reactor must be extremely high for the ramjet to work at all. Any hydrogen picked up by the scoop must be sped up to the same speed as the ship in order to provide thrust, and the energy required to do so increases with the ship's speed. Hydrogen itself does not fuse very well, unlike deuterium and tritium, the fuels for jet and ether. Unfortunately, isotopes of hydrogen, deuterium and tritium are rare in the interstellar medium. Because of this, you can't use this hydrogen directly to produce energy, a fact which accounts for the billion-year scale of stellar lifetimes. This problem was solved in principle, according to Dr. Boussard, by the use of the stellar CNO cycle, in which carbon is used as a catalyst to burn hydrogen via the strong nuclear reaction. Yet this can only increase the complexity of any fusion device that would be required. I mean, if it was such a simple concept to catalyse fusions with the CNO process, then people would be looking into it on Earth, and they're just not. Likely in the course of attempting to create this ramjet, he became fascinated by the commercial attempts at fusion on Earth, and was caught up in the wave of enthusiasm for tokamaks that we talked about in the last few episodes. Like several previous inventor visionaries we've mentioned, Boussard became obsessed with the potential and possibility of achieving fusion as a sort of a utopian vision, an energy source that would power and transform the world, making free energy for people and changing the very nature of how humanity operates, essentially. So, Boussard set up his own private company to circumvent the slow-moving process of government grants, international collaboration, and scientific consensus. In this, he was part of a long and continuing tradition of people who thought that the mainstream approach, ever bigger tokamaks, ever more expensive projects, ever larger collaborations, was leading nowhere, and that smaller, modular fusion reactors might be possible if only the right technology or design were to be found. So we'll talk about some of these startups in later episodes that I'm really looking forward to telling you about. But by 1978, 
Boussard had spent years struggling with the US Department of Energy to try and get his new Tokamak concept funded. Ultimately, he was not successful in getting his funding from the US Department of Energy. He would have to go to other sources. So what was so different about Boussard's idea? Well, the main concept that makes it different to an ordinary Tokamak is that it was vastly smaller. As we've already discussed, Tokamaks can confine enormous amounts of heat and generate neutrons that can easily damage or destroy any fragile components that are in the way. Using superconducting magnets, which are very delicate, uh, often made of ceramics and things like this, means that you need layers of shielding to protect those magnets. You need vacuum chambers that are sufficiently large to reduce the number of neutrons hitting any particularly delicate surface area, and so on. What this does, of course, is it means that you need a huge, huge tokamak with lots of layers of shielding, lots of layers of empty space, and lots of protection for your fragile components. But Boussard's plan was to more or less abandon all of this and manufacture a cheap interior vessel that's designed to be disposable. As soon as it became radioactively weakened or destroyed by the intense flux of these neutrons, which could even occur in a matter of days depending on the material you used, this interior vessel would be disposed of and refitted, in a process Boussard regularly compared to replacing a light bulb. So, in some ways, instead of trying to deal with the nuclear waste through shielding and so on, all of these neutrons as a dangerous problem for designing a practical reactor, he's just saying, throw it away and start again. The fact that the Rigatron, Boussard's device, would expose its magnets directly to the full force of the neutron flux meant that the delicate but powerful superconducting magnets couldn't possibly be used. I mean, they would just be destroyed far too quickly, and the whole project would become far too expensive, because you'd be replacing these valuable magnets. So instead they would use basic copper coil magnets. Even these would only last for a few weeks before needing to be melted down and replaced. But Boussard hoped that the cheaper cost of construction, using only normal copper rather than fancy YCBO or anything like that, would ultimately make his fusion reaction a more viable concern. At the same time as plans were being drawn up for Jet and Eater, the huge multi-million dollar tokamaks, Boussard was claiming that quote, my Rigatron could produce commercial fusion power as much as 20 years sooner than its mainline counterparts, saving billions in development dollars. A portable, flexible, high-energy neutron source, the Rigatron is capable of producing fusion power, fission power, ethanol for cars, oil from tar sands, and nuclear fuel. In addition to all that, it could furnish estimated profits that boggle the mind. One high-growth model shows Rigatron-based full production outstripping Exxon by the year 2000. Now, this of course is all just so much sales talk, the kind of elevator pitch you'd expect to hear from an international collaboration of respected plasma physicists, or some dude trying to sell you a third-hand tokamak that fell off the back of a lorry in a parking lot. Now, Boussard was not quite the latter, he wasn't a total amateur. He'd worked in the industry as an engineer for years, and he held a PhD in plasma physics from Princeton. But Boussard, like many others, became bitter towards the establishment after a $670,000 review of his proposed Tokamak project came back with an extremely negative verdict. He felt that the panel that had reviewed his work was tremendously biased because, of course, they were all deeply invested in the fusion mainstream, the big Tokamaks that were currently being constructed at the main plasma physics labs. And this is always the thing you have to deal with with these small independent physicists, these small independent scientists and observers, there's always a degree of bitterness because they feel that their idea so totally destroys the uh, mainstream, you end up with this quite conspiratorial thinking where they think, okay, well, clearly the reason they've rejected it is because they can't stand being wrong, and the fact that my ideas will overturn the entire scientific establishment. The problem is, of course, that generally when someone has a new idea that they think will overturn the whole scientific establishment, it doesn't, because it's not correct. 
Boussard later said of the study in an interview with Omni magazine, It was progress as far as we were concerned. For the first time we had money to explore the engineering parameters that bounded the physics requirements. As a result of that study, I was 100% confident that the Rigatron would work. But the scientific community aligned itself against us. In the spring of 1978, a board was convened to evaluate Rigatron's feasibility. The panel met and produced a report. The report was so asinine that my company, Inesco, wrote a 20-page rebuttal. That rebuttal got the panel to reconvene and consider it again. They came out with essentially the same kind of idiotic statements. Then they went downtown to higher levels of DOE and made presentations condemning the Rigatron concept. The study naturally cost an awful lot of doubt on the idea of exposing materials directly to the heat and neutron flux from fusion reactions. They suggested that the first wall of the fusion reaction, that is the first place that comes into contact with these neutrons, would just melt. And they were also sceptical that Boussard could do away with the more complicated auxiliary heating methods that were usually required to get the plasma to fusion temperatures. His device just relied on blasting current through the plasma, which had previously seen not to work. Of course, if you have these additional auxiliary heating components, then it makes your tokamak bigger necessarily because you have all this apparatus around the outside for things like neutral beam injection and so on that we've discussed in previous episodes. Boussard claimed in Omni that their concerns were based on a lack of expertise. He said, quote, That was nonsense. Total nonsense. It was said by people who have no experience in building heat transfer systems that conduct high heat flows. The kindest thing you can say about those on the first panel is that they were woefully ignorant of the engineering technology of high-power machinery. That is the kindest thing. When describing the DOE's funding apparatus, he sounds downright conspiratorial. He was asked if there was really a fusion establishment in the nation's capital that excluded all but the mainline magnetic fusion programs from getting funded. And when they asked him this leading conspiratorial question, he replied, quote, If you ask the people in government, they would categorically deny it, obviously, because to admit that would be to agree that they are perpetrators of evil. So they say, oh, of course not. Anyone with a good idea is welcome to come, and we will be glad to support them. In reality, things are quite complicated. Everything is funded by the Department of Energy through Germantown, Maryland, which is the old Atomic Energy Commission. Combine this with a small number of people who wander around the country contending that they should be given government research money to fund new and novel research solutions for fusion. In fact, one can show by known physics that most of these solutions don't work, which is why the DOE, in its reasonable wisdom, has chosen not to fund them. But we did not invent a new magnetic confinement scheme. All we did was take the tokamak and shrunk it in size by an engineering approach, not a physics approach. The physics is perfectly sound. We don't want to fight unproven physics. We never did. But suppose we're right. Suppose our machines do run as nature tells me they will. By 1984, we will have five machines that run at power outputs of 200 million watts for a couple of seconds. Our first commercial plant will be running in 1987, 20 years sooner, and at 1 40th of the cost of the mainline program. Now who in the national program can be enthusiastic about that? The Brigatron's swift development could, in their view, put careers on the line. Long-term personal futures are involved in this program. The bureaucracy in Washington, which has planned the main national program, is now faced with a curiosity of a 20-year-sooner solution that it didn't invent. And that doesn't make people feel good. It's human nature. So you can already see that Boussard had this deeply sort of conspiratorial paranoid vein that his ideas were so marvellous and they were just being ignored because everyone was jealous that his plan would essentially succeed faster than anyone else's possibly could. And this could well have been the end of the story. The scientific and technological community is littered with tales like this. 
The establishment is against me, they can't face the reality of my revolutionary technology and my brilliant ideas. They're hostile to anything that challenges their position, and they've closed the shop to technological innovation, so they can give away all the jobs and funding to their buddies. Sometimes these bitter outsiders have a point, and maybe they were treated unfairly. But more often than not, this is the refrain of the crank. I've seen it from people who have claimed to discover that all of physics since Newton's laws are wrong, because they misunderstood a simple phrase in high school, and people who've churned out endless books about how they're a thousand times smarter than those stupid scientists. Rejection can be very difficult to handle for people with big egos. And on the other hand, it's certainly true that there was always a degree of favouritism when choosing which designs do get funded and which designs do get built. Ultimately, these decisions are made by people, and they are made by people with human biases, and indeed, they're made based on things like reputation that you might consider to be unfair. That proliferation of magnetic confusion devices that did eventually arrive showed that obviously the entire nuclear fusion industry wasn't captivated by a single device. I think part of what fuels these uh, conspiratorial thinkers too is the fact that actually our narrative, our way of constructing science and the way we talk about it, is always that, you know, there is a consensus, and then some rare genius comes along, like Copernicus, and says, I've found the evidence, the key piece of information, and initially they're strongly resisted, but then eventually they're hailed as a hero. You know, you think of people like Copernicus who overthrew previous ideas, people like Einstein and the quantum mechanics scientists who overthrew the previous paradigm. That's what everyone wants to be. They want to be the, the rare genius-like individual who knows things that other people do. And we kind of feed into this narrative of this is how science advances through the unique actions of rare geniuses. And, you know, I might even be guilty of it in the show on occasion, but that's not necessarily how science actually advances most of the time. Usually it's by a great deal of collaboration between a great number of people who all work on parts of an individual problem, and perhaps they don't all have access to seeing the whole of that problem. The reality is that you don't need a vast anti-Bussard conspiracy to explain why his project didn't get funding. They don't even need to disagree on the science and engineering challenge of the project that much. Boussard might think that the Rigatron had a 10% chance of succeeding, and consequently it was worth a, sh a shot. But the government funding agency views that as a 90% chance of failure, and so of course they invest in the slower, steadier, but more likely to succeed routes for nuclear fusion. So you see, they could have exactly the same assessment about how viable the Rigatron would be, and still come to different conclusions about whether or not it should be funded. Yet at this stage, it looked like Boussard was just going to be another bitter figure on the fringes of the scientific community. When your dream is to develop an energy source that you believe will utterly change the world, and you really believe that you have the capacity to do it, it's perhaps no surprise that you will feel this way, even if your beliefs are totally unfounded. Boussard was more knowledgeable about fusion and reactor design than me. He probably had every reason, given what they knew in the 1970s, to suspect that his design was superior. But evidently, he was unable to persuade enough people of this fact, and so he would have gone out into the cult. That was at least until he met a guy called Bob Guccione, a vast multimillionaire who's probably best known for how he made his money. Bob Guccione founded Penthouse Magazine, which is, you know, it's not actually about the design of expensive apartments. Wikipedia helpfully describes it as aimed at competing with Hugh Hefner's Playboy magazine, but with more extreme erotic content. By the 1970s, Guccione had earned millions of dollars by essentially selling pornography with occasional side orders of journalism. He was also already well known by this point for making rather extravagant investments with that money. 
He had just invested $45 million in a hotel in the former Yugoslavia, which went bankrupt after just a year. And he'd invested $15 million of his own money in the movie Caligula, starring Malcolm McDowell, which is a truly infamous film. It was banned in numerous countries on release due to its intense sexual and violent content, and has widely been panned at the time as one of the worst movies ever made. Rotten Tomatoes described it as, Essentially perverse and indulgent, Caligula throws in hardcore sex every time the plot threatens to get interesting. Helen Mirren, who starred in the film, disagreed, describing it as, quote, An irresistible mix of art and genitals. Quite. Naturally, in later decades, the immense controversy surrounding the film led to it being reassessed, and it now enjoys a rather dubious cult classic status in certain circles. I haven't seen it. It would count as research for this show, and I do like Ancient Rome, but I haven't seen it. If anyone listening to me now has seen the movie Caligula and wants to give their own review, please contact us on www.physicspodcast.com. Getting into the life of Bob Guccione much further than this is really a topic for a very different podcast, and probably a different host, but hopefully this gives you a kind of idea. Imagine a more eccentric, possibly more unstable, iconoclastic version of Hugh Hefner. His fashion sense leaves a lot to be desired. But of course, this makes him a good anti-establishment figure to talk to if you wanted to get your pet nuclear fusion reactor design funded. And this is exactly what happened. In fact, this interview that we've been quoting from Broussard was in Omni magazine, and Omni magazine was one of the publications that Guccione owned. Luckily for Boussard, Guccione wasn't just interested in the fusion of genitals, and when he read the interview in one of his own magazines, he was fascinated by what Boussard had to offer. Guccione had long been a fusion true believer, saying in an interview that he had long since concluded that fusion was the only way to go to solve man's energy problems. And like many others in the Cold War, he also viewed scientific progress as a constant geopolitical race with the Soviet Union. The person who creates the first fusion reactor literally controls the world's energy supply, said Guccione in an interview. And if it wasn't this country, who is it going to be? Russia? Communist China? Imagine having a unique patent on the telephone system and the electric light system combined, because the whole world uses it, especially third world countries, he said. It would totally transform the world. So reading this attractive story of a spurned, maverick, fusion genius scientist in one of his own magazines was enough for Guccione to write to Boussard and invite him to dinner to discuss his ideas. I'll quote from the excellent book Fusion, The Search for Endless Energy by Robin Herman, describing what happened next. Quote, Over the meal, Boussard described the difficulties he was having with obtaining government funding. After all, the Department of Energy had committed $314 million to the tokamak at Princeton and $100 million more to the mirror machine at Livermore. Guccione urged Boussard to seek industrial and business investors, but Boussard said he'd already exhausted that route. The trouble was, Boussard told Cuccioni, he could not stir any enthusiasm because he could not definitively say when a marketable project would be ready. Boussard believed he could produce a commercially viable mini-reactor in 10 years, but there would be no guarantee. Boussard was unaware that his host was already a true believer in the possibilities of nuclear fusion. Bob Cuccioni decided to finance the mini Tokamak project, hoping that his personal weight, and his personal financial backing, might serve as the gravity to draw in other investors. He knew that the mainstream scientific community expected cracking fusion to take many decades and hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, of course, we know today that if anything, even these estimates were optimistic. But, motivated by the same starry-eyed idealism that we've seen throughout the fusion odyssey so far, they felt that if it worked, the consequences would be nothing short of spectacular. 
In March 1980, Guccione formed a partnership with Boussard and turned over, as he recalled, some $400,000 in startup funds. Engineers, computer programmers, and metallurgists were hired, and Inesco set up a new shop in La Jolla, California, with 85 employees. Over the next four years, as design work continued and the investors' search continued, Guccione poured in between 16 and $17 million by his own accounting. Predictably, the Inesco scientists who attended international meetings endured considerable ribbing about working for one of the most successful purveyors of adult magazines in the world. Physicists and pinups seemed quite hilariously incongruous. But the Inesco team knew that Guccione was a serious investor and a sincere proponent of fusion. That's what really mattered. Guccione saw that it was funny too, and he was not without a sense of humour about it all. To oversee Penthouse's interest in Inesco, the publisher created a subsidiary company, which he dubbed Penthouse Energy and Technology Systems, thus creating the acronym PETS. It was a conscious reference to Penthouse's nude centrefold, the pet of the month. Despite Guccione's wholehearted support for the project, though, it was doomed to failure. $17 million was a lot of money, but even that wasn't enough to build a prototype of the Rigatron. The project had always relied on their ability to persuade other like-minded people to invest along the way, and this didn't pan out. Guccione leveraged all of his business contacts and um, enthusiasm for the project, and he drew attention to it as an investment opportunity in a number of flashy different ways, but ultimately nothing really worked out. Even in the Omni interview, it seems clear that he was hoping for another chance to get a mainstream government contract by demonstrating that his design was superior with a prototype, and Boussard even suggested there was a danger that the Russians would construct a Rigatron before the US did. Perhaps it was the scientific concerns that other scientists would express with the Rigatron, or the bizarre nature of the thing, appearing to be a pet project with a spurned physicist and a pornography baron, but ultimately the Rigatron failed to attract any additional investment. Boussard and Guccione became increasingly conspiratorial, suggesting that they were being undermined by lobbying from nuclear fission and other investors. Then, according to Robin Herman, in 1984, an attempt to take Inesco public flopped after the underwriter failed to sell the last 40,000 shares. Boussard's dream and Guccione's gamble were crushed. Shortly after this, Guccione decided to stop funding the project altogether. And while he remained avidly interested in fusion projects, this was his last major financial gamble on the subject until he died in 2010. The Rigatron itself was never constructed. Later developments in the Tokamaks at JET and TFTR showed that the Rigatron concept could never have worked anyway. It would likely have been ruined by the same instabilities that, in the 1970s, were only just being discovered. While there are clear scientific and engineering motivations to produce smaller, more compact fusion reactors, and we discussed a lot of these reasons in our Buzzkill episodes, the Rigatron was never the appropriate solution. Its copper coil magnets would be incapable of providing the magnetic field sufficient for fusion to work, and Boussard's ideas of disposing of the large amounts of nuclear waste by feeding them back into the plasma were pretty fantastical given what impurities do to plasma confinement. Ultimately, even its most die-hard believer, Boussard, abandoned the idea of ever constructing a Rigatron. He knew that the project was far too speculative and unlikely to ever gain the millions of dollars of funding required. But this did not stop Bissard from pursuing fusion altogether, and he would spend the next 30 years looking into inertial confinement fusion, a device that would in fact accelerate plasma particles into each other at phenomenal speeds and cause them to fuse together. This was closer to electrostatic inertial confinement fusion, as it's called, than his previous dreams of a small modular tokamak, and it resulted in a device called the polywell, which still has its advocates today. Boussard was still pitching ideas about fusion and the success of his devices 
until his death in 2007, decades after he'd initially made all these promises about the Rigatron. Eternally convinced that humanity was on the brink of making this thing a success, if only they would listen to him. We'll come back to the idea of inertial electrostatic confinement fusion when we talk more about fusion startups and alternative attempts at achieving this dream. But for now though, we'll leave the spurned physicist and the pornography baron in their rightful small but instructive place in the annals of fusion history, starry-eyed, dreaming of funding the invention that would guarantee the human race a glorious future, one centrefold at a time. And that's all we have to say on the subject until, of course, they adapt it into a Hollywood movie. And if anyone's interested, I'm available for scriptwriting duties. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Physical Attraction. You can do all of the usual things to support the show. Follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. Follow the Facebook page on Physical Attraction. You can donate to the show. Links are on our website, www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll also find the contact form, which you can use to express any comments, concerns, changes, new episodes, ideas, people you'd like me to interview. Anything you like. It's always good to hear from you guys in the audience. Until next time, then, take care.